We're uh, talking about, uh, in this series, the things that we all naturally seek, the, the answers that everybody wants, right? And we all want different things, but kind of the premise that we've been going through, if you're uh, visiting with us, is that really a lot of what we all want, uh, we are fundamentally the same. Uh, we're a little bit lopsided. Uh, some of what you want is a little bit different than maybe what I want, or, or maybe there's different um, ways that you want things than I would necessarily, but, but we're all basically the same, uh, with little, little differences uh, here and there. I want to talk a little bit uh, today about the difference uh, between abstract and concrete for just a moment. Uh, what is abstract and what is concrete? Underneath everything in computers, uh, you get down, there's, there's simple ones and zeros. And it, it, it's really all abstract information. This is, by the way, I love you, right? Love is an abstract idea, but here it is boiled down in a concrete, uh, a simple information. Now, I suppose that um, to us, con- uh, uh, concrete and abstract are big, big differences, I suppose if, if maybe our brains were better, maybe it wouldn't be. And your eyes work a little bit funny. You know that? You know that, uh, that what you sense in, in sight uh, is just a small amount. Uh, everything, every type of energy there is is this, this wavelength. And, and your eye can only pick out a certain wavelength as color. Now, that God, I assume, did that. For a very good reason, because if you're driving down, uh, you know, your radio when you're driving is distracting enough. I've gotten into a car accident because I was adjusting my radio uh, one time. Very, very bad accident. Uh, but imagine if you could see color that came out of your radio. That, that would be very distracting. Uh, and, and theoretically, if God gave us different eyes and a different brain, we could theoretically see color uh, on that, because that's just a different wavelength. Uh, or, or, you know, you could, you could put your food in your microwave and see, uh, see all sorts of colors coming out of you if you had different eyes, right? Uh, I suppose it's possible that, that God could have given us a brain, that we could have a definition that's the difference between abstract and concrete, like, like liberty or, or freedom or all these different ideas, success. We, we talk about success. I was at a, a graduation yesterday, and there was a lot of discussion about success, and this, uh, this, the, uh, the, the kid was going on and on about success. So you're 18 years old, maybe, you know? You don't know anything about success yet. Uh, and... Uh, uh, I suppose it's possible for God to have this definition out there. And he's like, you know, you just don't have the brain. To you, Mr. Andrew, uh, who thinks you're better than an 18-year-old, you think you have this idea of, of success, but really uh, there's an actual definition. I suppose maybe God has that information, and maybe my brain isn't just, I'm seeing just a narrow window. So, so everything out there is kind of abstract, maybe. I don't know. But we are going to uh, deal with, um, and really last week we started our first lesson, we dealt with the, the basic desire we have for physical things, and, and that is concrete. We want physical things in life, and physical comfort, and, and we are providing for ourselves. That's very concrete. We, we have a definite definition for that. And once we get past that, as we work our way up kind of the chain of, of things that are more significant we start getting more abstract. We start leaving what we are familiar with. Our, our desires are, are really not 
Well, God has put these things in us to, to desire what can only be fulfilled by God elsewhere. And, and what we're trying to do through this is, is to say, okay, I, I, what happens before then? What happens before heaven? Is there a way that I can take these basic desires that God has given me with this little narrow window of visibility that I have and still apply it to, to the life I have here and try to understand some way I can use it and, and fulfill this basic desire that God has given me in the meantime to, to further uh, the kingdom, to further what he's doing uh, in my life and, and in this world. So uh, we're going to begin with Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13 through 16. And he goes through, this chapter is called the faith chapter, right? And it's all these different people of, of great faith and Abraham and Sarah and, and all these wonderful people that did incredible things through their faith. And he says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, uh, there were people who speak thus, make it clear that they are seeking a city. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to go back. But as it is, they desire a better country, and that is a, a heavenly one. And therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, because He has prepared for them a city. And so again, we're drawn to this idea that there is a heavenly city. And that's what we're talking about, that humanity seeks a city. Now, some of you say, uh-uh, I'd rather live on a farm. Okay, just bear with me. Just please bear with me here. We want a city. No, what I mean by that, not necessarily that you want to live in the middle of New York. Okay? But mankind has this intrinsic desire for a society. That's what we want. We were made for a group. And maybe your group is a little bit smaller. Maybe your group that you like is, is, is a two or three person group. You're, you're pretty good with the, the, the two or three people that live on your street. Maybe, maybe you're the person that would rather be slammed right in the middle of it all. Right? Uh, but we all seek a society. We have an intrinsic desire for city, if, if you want to look at it that way. Uh, there's a guy by the name of Nimrod. That's kind of a joke. It wasn't always a joke, right? Nimrod was not always a punchline. Think of this guy. Cush, now Cush is the grandson of, uh, of Noah. And so he fathers a guy by the name of Nimrod. It's kind of hard to say that with a straight face, isn't it? Maybe you look at Nimrod a little bit differently here. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. Okay. So apparently back then nobody called him, you know, with, with a, with a, uh, as an insult. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord, and so it said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. And from that land he went to Assyria and built Nineveh, Reboth, or Kala, Rezin, between Nineveh and Kala. That is the great city. Now, this is interesting. Because he built Babel, which is the center of Babylon, and Nineveh, which is the center of the Assyrian 
Empire. So he built the two capitals of two of a handful of world empires in the history. So, so you would not call that guy, hey, Nimrod, right? You would not say that to his face. It was kind of like the guy that uh, or, uh, I, I saw an interview, and Shaquille O'Neal was in eighth grade, and he was, he was like six foot four or something like that. And he was in the military, and someone, uh, this true story, he said, someone called me Shaquille. And that was the last time he called me that. <laughs> Right? Like, why would you call Shaquille an insult? Like, like he's, he's, he's huge, right? You would not call Nimrod Nimrod like that. But this is interesting. He says, um, he also built Kala, which is the great city. So apparently there was a city that was greater than Babel or Nineveh. That impresses me. And I don't know where that one went. But that's, that's crazy. This guy just went around building cities. He desired cities. Well, obviously, if you're building cities, there's other people that desire it too, isn't there? People were attracted, and we're going to look at what this represents. The word city comes from a Greek word, polis. That's kind of interesting, polis. We have a lot of words with that root, don't we? So we're going to look at several things that polis, or a, a city, represents? Well, <clears throat> the first thing uh, that it represents is order. Right? A lot of people, they start you know, aging. Not My grandpa lived miles out of town. But, but when his health started declining, he's like, I kind of want to be near a hospital. Right? And he eventually moved across the street from a hospital. And uh, it, it was... There's order. There's a sense of security there. You wanted order. And we want order in society, don't we? We look at the disorder in society. We intrinsically understand that that's wrong. That's not a way a society should be. And so we seek order through policy, don't we? Isn't that interesting? We need laws. And we need rules. We want all these things to, to make sure life runs the way I think it should be. Because right? that's the way God would do it. I mean, I assume that heaven is going to be a completely ordered place. There's going to be no disorder there. And God says, I'm, I'm building a better place, right? I, I'm, I'm building them a city. And we seek that kind of a city, some kind of Order. Man migrates towards society, even an imperfect one. It's interesting. Genesis chapter 13, verse 11 and 12, this is about Lot. Lot, we know the story of Lot and Abraham deciding which way they're going to go. They got all these flocks. So Lot chose uh, the better place uh, in the plain of Jordan, and, and so he went east, and they separated themselves one from another. Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain, and he pitched his tents towards. Sodom. Now, it's interesting. It's a direction. Just kind of over in the general direction. I'm going to be a little closer. But, but we move through this, these couple of chapters, and we know what these chapters are about, God, and uh, communicating with Abram, and there's all these different things that are going on. But, but in chapter 19, we see this happening. Two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. 
When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night. Wash your feet. You may go up early and go on your way. And they said, No, we will spend the night in the town square and press them strongly. And so they turned aside and went into his house. And this is kind of interesting to me because I'm wondering where the tents went. And where did the, all the, the livestock, maybe he had livestock still in, in there being taken care of by somebody else, but, but he wants no part of it. He pitched his tents towards Sodom, but he didn't stay out there. He was seeking a city. When we see him next, he's in the gates of the city. Again, I, I, don't, I highly doubt that this is a metropolis, okay? I, I, doubt, it's, it's, I doubt it's even the size of, you know, Waukesha. I imagine it's pretty small. But to them, it was a city. And, and to them, it was, it was order. It was society. He gave up that temporary moving around thing. He wanted something permanent. He wanted something ordered. And that's kind of the way we are. It's a, now, I, I want to settle down, and I want this, this structure. So that's the, the first thing we think of, I think, when we, we look at wanting a society, wanting a city. <clears throat> the second thing we want is justice, right? We have this thing called the police. Interesting. When we think of a city, we think of enforcement. Once you get the policies, you have to enforce the policies. That's kind of important. There's been a debate the last year about the role of police, hasn't there, in society. Now, I'm not here to weigh in on that debate. That's not what this is about. In fact, if anything, this sermon is about the opposite of that. But one thing you can see is that those cities who have weighed in heavily against it have seen a mass exodus of people. Why? Because it goes to what we talk about, is that people would rather have an imperfect society than no society. We, we, we desire and we, we crave justice. And we would rather have an imperfect justice than no justice. That's just how we are. It goes with that security that we long for. Philemon, in verses 10 through 15, an interesting... Uh, section here. He's writing to um, Philemon about a man named Onesimus. Onesimus has escaped from Philemon. He's a slave. Uh, Philemon is a Christian who owns slaves. That's kind of interesting. This is what Paul writes to him. He says, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. For he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. And I'm sending him back to you, my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he could serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent. In order that your goodness might not be under compulsion, but of your own free will. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. Now, I don't think this is a random meeting. Uh, we know from Colossians that, that 
uh, Onesimus lives in Colossae in Greece. Paul is in prison in Rome. I don't think randomly Onesimus found Paul. I think he went searching for Paul. And what was he searching for? He was searching for Paul to say, tell him to set me free. This isn't right. This is not right. I have human rights. I've had to rethink something I've thought for about a year. I've only thought about it for a year because it's only been a topic of discussion for about a year, at least a broad topic of discussion. We've had a discussion about the roles of people in the past and, and how, what kind of standard to hold people who lived 100 and 200 years ago. Do we hold them to our modern standard? We, we shouldn't hold them. To, we, we've come so far. We've understood so much more. And the, the discussion Cam had a, a few months ago about canceling and, and how much canceling goes on. And, and what, what degree should we hold people 200 years ago to? We crave justice as a part of our humanity. And 2,000 years ago, Philemon knew intrinsically that slavery was wrong. 2,000 years ago, he got that. We should hold them to every standard that we would expect humanity to. It's interesting that it's really not a matter of time which, which makes people understand things properly. It's a, it's a matter of position that makes people understand things properly. The uneducated people in slavery intrinsically understand that their civil rights are being violated, their human rights. But somehow these educated people of all societies and all ages and all times, they, they don't seem to grasp it. We, we hold them to such a low standard, these educated people. When the uneducated people in any society understand intrinsically that it's wrong. Come on. It's about convenience. That's what gets in the way. It's not education. It's not intelligence that gets in the way. And I kind of had to rethink that. We crave a city because we crave justice. And we intrinsically know what those things are. We crave another thing that only is fulfilled in heaven. That's utopia. Children's stories end how happily ever after. Right? Movies routinely or, or TV series, they, they all end with, with some sort of conflict that ends all conflicts. And, and, and there's no more conflicts. It's wonderful. Everyone lives happily ever after. That's what we want. That's what we crave. We, <clears throat> we want rights. We talked about that, justice. But I, I think sometimes we don't understand what that means because when you talk about rights, what a right is is that somebody has to give you something. Right? Someone has to guarantee it. If, if it's a right, you have to be given to it. You have to be made sure that that's provided. A lot of things that are called right. I have the right. right? 
kids. I have the right to drive. No, you don't. You have a privilege. You understand the difference between privilege and, and rights. There's a, a lot of things that get thrown in the rights category that are really privileges. We want rights. We want that utopia. We want that perfect world. Right? Well, <clears throat> that's how society comes up with perfect things, wow. doesn't it? We need people to give us things. Well, we turn to politics. That's what there is in a city. And so we need this structure to make life perfect. Bear with me for the next little bit. It's going to get weird. I have not listened to Coast to Coast since 1998, just for full disclosure. Most of you don't know what that is. Plato wrote about a place called Atlantis. Utopia. Perfect place. He, he gave lots of descriptions of it, what it was built like, and all sorts of things. And as time has gone on, it's been a place where you know, the Martians came, or all sorts of weird stuff, right? I don't believe in Atlantis. Sort of. Sort of. <clears throat> These are pictures that almost perfectly match some of the things that, that Plato wrote about. And he described where it was. It was between the, or right near the pillars of, I think it's called the Pillars of Hercules. It's uh, the Rock of Gibraltar on the left in Spain, and I forget what the one in Africa is called where, interestingly enough, the Mediterranean empties out into the Atlantic. Right? And these, the pictures that you see here uh, are located right there. Now, it wasn't called Atlantis. That's a, it's right near Seville, Spain. I don't believe this, there were any Martians there. Full disclosure. Okay? I don't believe it was a utopia either. Uh, this is kind of interesting because it didn't go, as I said, it didn't go by the name Atlantis back then. Uh, there's an ancient word. Uh, hello. That was not me. So that was the speed version of our sermon. And you're now dismissed. No. You just get me back there. I'm not, I really don't know. It's like I had a seizure. Anyway, <laughs> it was called Tartessos. And um, Jonah, I'll just turn there while he's trying to find it. Jonah chapter 1 is interesting. There we go. Okay, I'm going to try this one more time. Okay, good. So the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up against me. But Jonah rose and fled to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. In Tartessos, I believe. Very similar word structure. Now, I don't believe in utopia. The point is that when, when, when Jonah wanted to get away from the worst possible place, <laughs> a place that was built by... Uh, our, our friend, uh, uh, I forget his name now, uh, insult guy. What was that? Yeah. There we go. You're, you're paying attention. 
When he wanted to get as far away from that place, he wanted to get to Utopia. I don't believe it was Utopia, but Jonah thought it was. Perfect place on earth where you could live the Tartesso stream. Right? Where the politics were wonderful and the justice was wonderful and, and everything was wonderful. I, I think probably those who lived in Tartessos would have begged to differ. They would have recognized all the injustice. They would have recognized all the problems, whatever the place looked like. And, and, and through thousands of years of this existence of this place, it's grown into this great legend of, of whatever. And lost because it wasn't perfect. Because mankind has always wanted this fairy tale story. And God says, listen, I'm making a place that will be the fairy tale story, but you can't have it here. So, since we can't have it here, how do we fulfill this need for utopia, for justice, for rights, for all of these things? How do we fulfill it? We have to get a new perspective, first of all. <clears throat> A new perspective of our world. Hebrews 13, 14 says, For here we have no enduring city. Not even Atlantis. You have no enduring city. But we seek the city that is to come. Listen to that when it says, No enduring city. Nineveh, Babylon, whatever that other, Kala, whatever that was. <laughs> All those other cities are gone, they're done, they're in the dust. And whatever you think the United States is or has been, it's going that direction sooner or later. We have here no enduring city. That's a promise. That's a good promise. Because that means there's something better. And we, we sit here as citizens of this place and we, we go, oh no, we're losing this. It never was. It never was a utopia. Not in the 50s, not in the 30s, not in the 1800s. It never has been utopia. So we need to get a new perspective of our world. Everyone who has lived at the end of an arc of a civilization, has mourned its loss. Everyone. We will be no exception or whoever comes after us. Whatever point in time this, this particular place on earth gets wrapped up, or the one after it, or the society after that, whenever that is, those people mourn. There is no utopia. It only exists in AM talk radio shows. It's temporary. We need to get a better perspective of ourselves. Philippians 3.20 says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a completely new way of thinking, not just of, of our country, but a way of thinking of ourselves. We get so connected to our polis because we think we are connected to it. 
You have to develop a new identity of yourself. This is not where your citizenship is. You might have a piece of paper. But spiritually, that's not what you're a part of. That should not be what you most closely identify with. That should not be where your energy is. That's not your city. This is not my city. How many times do we pray for our politicians to make good moral laws? They can't. Their citizenship is here. They're very limited at best. And so, that's the first thing we need to do, is to develop a new perspective. If we're going to come close to developing something better here for the kingdom, I have to change my perspective of how it's going to be accomplished. It is not going to be accomplished by laws. Pushing for this policy or that policy or this this school thing or what all the things that we get amped up about is not going to be how this world is improved until such time as we get an actual utopia. We have to come up with a new method. Romans two seven and eight says those who by patience and well doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he'll give eternal life. That's that utopia. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath. And there will be fury. So, the first thing is to look at a different benefactor. The closest thing that we can get to a perfect world here is going to be achieved by a different means. I have to try to make other people's lives better. He guarantees me that the one thing that that is not going to produce is trying to accomplish a utopia for myself. When we want things better, we're, we're kind of like Onesimus. Tell him to let me free. I want my rights. And Paul seeks the solution that is best for both people, for everybody involved. And that's different. When I try to make lives better, that's going to be the closest thing I get here. If I am running from one location to another location looking for the perfect location, I am never going to find it. It doesn't exist. I have an intrinsic desire for it, but I have to get it by making it, by creating it. Just like we talked about that emotional thing, that peace, making that. I have to get it by trying to be a catalyst for that. Not searching the world over for a utopia. You'll find that when you find Atlantis. I need not just a different uh, benefactor, not just a different location, right? The different location is, is, is that it's not a location. The location is within the church. 
within and among people, and it is a different kind of justice. I have to start defining justice differently. I'm going to read a, a verse that's too long to put up there. I, just this one concluding verse. But Matthew chapter 5. He defines it. Beginning in verse 43. He says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, so that you can be sons of your Father in heaven. For He makes His Son to shine or to rise on the evil and the good, and to send rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't the tax collectors even do the same? If you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? That's an insult. It's like Nimrod. Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. So I have a a different benefactor. I have a different type of justice, really. We equate two things, justice and fairness. They are not the same thing. Justice is getting what one deserves. Fairness is getting the same. They aren't even close. Fairness is, is making... Well, if one person deserves a lot and another person deserves a little based on what they've done, and I give them the same, I've been unjust, haven't I? I've been fair, but unjust. Fairness and justice don't even come close to each other. God says, be perfect like your Father in heaven is perfect. He's fair. But in a way, he's not just. Not, not according to our justice, anyway. Maybe he has a different type of justice. Maybe this is one of those things which, if my brain was bigger, I would understand those concepts. But Christ's definition, and Christ's prioritization, is to make sure that everyone has the same opportunity. Not just those do I think deserve it. Not just the people who... who have been better. And so they deserve a better opportunity. Fairness means I treat people the same. So that I must offer mercy and love to all groups equally. Like God. The people who are sinners, the people who are my enemies, all the same. And then we'll be perfect. That's utopia. If we could perfectly do that, we could perfectly create utopia. And we're humans. We're not going to do that. And that's why there's no utopia here. So we're going to conclude with one thought. To show a mercy. What? That's weird. What do you mean, show mercy? I phrase it this way for, for a reason. To find someone who needs a mercy 
And I don't know what mercy that might be. But some way to show a person who you might think doesn't deserve it. It is easy to show people the mercies that, that, that we think they deserve and they're owed. Maybe something you don't even know. It could be... Oh, we, we think of mercy immediately. We, we think of what Guy was talking about, a financial mercy. Some type of thing like that. But a forgiveness can be a mercy. It is a mercy. That's a hard one to give. Or to pray for somebody that has harmed you. They might not even know you're extending them mercy. To pray for someone you don't like. To release resentment, a long-held resentment for somebody who has legitimately harmed you. Or to give up a resentment of somebody you don't even know. We have those too. A person you'll never know. That we speak ill of on a daily basis. Or we speak about behind their back. These are extending mercies. These are being fair as our, our Heavenly Father as he is perfect. And these are difficult challenges. I'm not going to find a utopia here. But this is the next best thing.